Hi, welcome to Monocular, a storytelling podcast where I offer you a one-eyed look at the distant and not-so-distant past. Here it is, the third and final part of this triple episode about the time I spent calling myself a Satanist during my late teens. You're more than welcome to keep listening, even if you haven't listened to the first two parts, but I do assure you that they work best when listened to in their chronological order. Monocular is written, performed, recorded, and produced by me, Mikkel Elbeck, and you can go to monocularpod.com to find all the information you could want about the show including how to become a patron for just a few bucks a month. Of course, subscribing to the show or leaving a five-star review is also something you can do if you want to relate to me and the world that you like listening to all these stories. Monocular is a Torahtown Storyworks production, and for more information about the company, a one-stop shop for all kinds of storytelling, please visit torahtown.com. The final part of the story reminds me of a song lyric by Damien Gerardo. It's from the song, Cloudy Shoes, which happens to be a current favorite of mine. He sings, funny how we all can change if we just try to. It's such a simple way of putting it, but it speaks volumes to me. It's incredibly difficult to change other people, but if you want to change yourself, you definitely can, if you just try to. In my late teens, after realizing that the whole Satanism thing just left me kind of lonely, I was eager to change. And I definitely tried, but I still had a long road of intellectual self-discovery ahead of me. I hope you'll enjoy riding along that road with me in this third part of the story entitled, Yes, Today's Satan. At the ripe old age of 17, it had finally dawned on me. Christianity wasn't the problem. It was religion as a whole, and thereby also Satanism. This was a huge realization for me. Not long after, I wrote an essay which I published on my website, The Black Market. Inspired by the London Tube and those constant warnings to not fall down onto the tracks as you step on or off the train, I titled the essay, Mind the Gap. It opens with the following words. I am against religion, all kinds of religion, even though a religion suitable for my way of living might exist somewhere. Religion breeds hatred, and religions have preachermen who will try to make you think in a certain way. Religion destroys individuality. Quite quickly, I arrive at the overall point of the essay, which would inspire its title. Belonging to a religion makes a huge and needless gap between you and whoever you meet that's belonging to a different religion. Then I go on for quite a while about the endless shortcomings of Christianity before I rhetorically ask, Why not take it all the way and become a Satanist, a devil worshiper, as the Christians assume you are anyway? Actually, I've already answered that. Because religion breeds hatred. To think that one would be less hateful by becoming a Satanist is laughable. 
Personally, I share a lot of opinions with Anton LaVey, and I can follow his way of reasoning to a certain extent. But even though my way of living can be defined as satanic, I would never again call myself a Satanist, as I cannot see the point. Why be a part of a religion and rebuild the gap that I'm happily destroying? Why keep doctrines in mind if I do not intend to follow them accurately anyway? And finally, why be put in the same place as several thousands of ignorants who claim to have found the right way of living? Some, unfortunately, very few Satanists, counting the ones I've encountered, are really intelligent and have the ability of recognizing the words of wisdom that LeVay wrote over the years. Way too many see his writings as an excuse for being assholes, and for some reason, some Satanists actually believe in the devil, whom LeVay clearly said didn't exist any more than God did, and allow themselves to perform bizarre killings of innocent animals, or something as idiotic, only proving that they never understood a word LeVay wrote. Personally, I rate LeVay to broaden my mind, not to figure out a recipe on how to be more diabolic. I watch Christian television as one way to search for the point in Christianity, not for a cheap laugh. As I reread my essay two decades after I wrote it, that last part caught me by surprise. It was a pleasant surprise, however, to learn that I had relatively quickly moved on to spending my energy trying to understand other people and their beliefs, rather than simply preaching my own beliefs at them. Upon being taught about Socrates in my senior year of high school, I became absolutely intrigued with the Socratic method. That is, instead of telling people what you think, you ask them questions about what they think, potentially encouraging critical thinking and triggering realizations they may not otherwise have had, and realizations they would never be open to if you just told them straight up. I embarrassingly became so obsessed with all of this that, for a while, my online chat handle was Teen Socrates which is, admittedly, one of the silliest and most pretentious things anyone could call themselves. Nevertheless, I owe a lot to this ancient Greek philosopher who helped me realize that the best form of intellectual exchange comes in the form of questions and answers, not through aggressive extrapolations of your own viewpoints. In the years following high school, there were two figures in particular who helped shape my post-satanic and non-religious view on the world. The first was Bertrand Russell, and specifically his both hilarious and enlightening essay from 1927, entitled, Why I'm Not a Christian. In it, he speaks of how people in church are debasing themselves and saying that they are miserable sinners and all the rest of it, and how it seems contemptible and not worthy of self-respecting human beings. He also questions the character of Christ as he recounts the story of Jesus cursing a fig tree for not being in season, and how this frustrated Jesus greatly because he happened to be hungry and would very much have liked to enjoy a little fig. Russell states, This is a very curious story, because it was not the right time of year for figs, and you really could not blame the tree. I was blown away by both the humor with which Russell made his point and by the timelessness of his writing, it felt like it could have been written in 1997 rather than 1927, and it was the first time I realized that clever writings such as this one, that are critical of religion, often seem to have this kind of timelessness to them. I also encountered this at university upon reading Immanuel Kant's essay, What is Enlightenment?, and later in life when I finally got around to reading Mark Twain. Besides Bertrand Russell, the main figure to help me get grounded in this world as a non-believer was Richard Dawkins. 
I wish I could say I'd read all of his books, but I had to admit that it was his endless stream of documentaries that really got me hooked. He would talk about the God delusion and the virus of faith, all of which were, as we say in Denmark, water on my mill. With me as a viewer, he was, if you will, preaching to the choir, and his confrontations with the religious people were always highly entertaining, not least due to his academic insistence on always being absolutely right, which of course I thought that he was, but I could also see how his approach might be off-putting to some people. That never hurt the entertainment value, though. My most favorite of his documentaries is the one called The Enemies of Reason, in which he doesn't talk as much about religion, but more specifically about all the kinds of unscientific beliefs that people may have, such as astrology, dowsing, alternative medicine, and psychic readings. One by one, he inserts himself in situations with people who believe in all these things, and he puts them to the test and supervises experiments that one by one demonstrate the invalidity of all of them. The main takeaway for me was never the realization that, oh goodness, you actually can't talk to dead people, or wow, my fate isn't actually dictated by my star sign, because I already didn't believe in any of those things. Rather, my fascination was the interaction between the various people who fell prey to Dawkins' experiments and Dawkins himself, particularly after he had demonstrated that what they believed in couldn't pass any scientific tests. Out of all of them, and there were many, two reactions stood out. First, there's a really nice guy who participated in Dawkins' double-blind dousing test, which reveals that the ability to locate water through dousing is no better than what you can arrive at through sheer chance. The guy had six attempts to locate water, but only succeeded once, imitating the kind of chance you get from rolling dice. Dawkins asks the guy what he makes of it, and his response is that God was having a laugh, and further explains that Dawkins doesn't realize that God actually loves a joke. The other reaction that stood out for me was that of Neil Spencer, an astrologer for the British newspaper The Observer. After a series of tests determines that the concept of astrology is completely random and scientifically invalid, Spencer points out to Dawkins that the intention behind the tests was mischief, and therefore what Dawkins got back from the tests was also mischief. Dawkins makes the point that whether or not his intentions were mischief, the scientific aspects of the experiment hold up. Spencer disagrees and says he simply doesn't believe in the experiment. Dawkins retorts that Spencer is in a kind of no-lose situation then, to which Spencer simply responds, I hope so. As such, my main takeaway from this fantastic documentary was one that still highly informs my view of the world and other people's beliefs to this day. When you have invested yourself in a certain set of beliefs over the course of many years, you are much more likely to maintain those beliefs even when confronted with evidence that you may actually have gotten it all wrong. Because people don't seem to like admitting that they're wrong or that they have wasted any significant part of their life on something that wasn't as true or meaningful as they thought it was. Axl Rose phrased this in a very eloquent manner in the song Locomotive and it's my favorite Guns N' Roses lyric. He sings, I've worked too hard for my illusions just to throw them all away. What really amazes me is that this doesn't simply apply to religion or superstitious beliefs, but actually any kind of belief one might have. It could be a moral belief, a political belief, a sports team you're rooting for, or some kind of guiding principle in life that seems wholly important to your self-identity. If you've invested years, decades, or potentially even your whole life in a certain belief, a political party, or religious group, it seems to only be that much more difficult to distance yourself from it. And certainly no one, let alone a teenage Satanist, 
is going to be able to just preach at you and then make you change your whole worldview. The willingness to change has to come from somewhere else. But it's hard, and I keep learning that same lesson over and over again. And it's much more fruitful in terms of your intellectual development to remain humbled by the universe and curious about other people's beliefs than it is to try and convince or convert anybody to hold the same beliefs as you. The added bonus, of course, is that people will generally like you a lot more, too, not least because you're taking a genuine interest in them and allowing them to share their views at length. Nevertheless, I still find great inspiration in the story Richard Dawkins has told of two scientists, one of whom proves the other one wrong during a guest lecture. Rather than being upset that his theory, which he had believed in for 15 years, was proven wrong, the scientist expresses passionate gratitude towards the other scientist, exactly because he had become further enlightened. Undoubtedly, he had worked hard at his own theory, but upon learning that it was wrong, he willfully threw it away, because enlightenment is more important than personal pride. That's how I'd like to think I prioritize in any intellectual exchange but I obviously fall short with a significant frequency. Still, it's nice to have this story and the ideal it represents in mind. And of course, I wouldn't hate it if someone were to approach me and passionately thank me for enlightening them. As the years went by, I kept struggling with what to call myself. Even if I wasn't a Satanist anymore, And even if I had completely rejected any kind of religion, I still felt the urge to make myself part of some kind of ism. This led me to inventing something called post-atheism, which I wrote an essay or two on, without ever showing them to anyone. The general idea was that atheism was simply the first step, the rejection of the existence of God. Post-atheism, then, was meant to be the second step. It was an attempt at developing a moral philosophy without any kind of religious imagery or superstition but still some set of rules that could provide guidance in life. I left the concept behind before too long, probably because it was such an overwhelming task to write up a complete moral philosophy for mankind. I would later learn that Alain de Baton had had a very similar idea to come up with a quote-unquote religion for atheists, except he called it Atheism 2.0, and his goal was to incorporate religious forms and traditions into the lives of atheists, to thereby satisfy the human need for connection, ritual, and transcendence. Ultimately, I personally arrived at the realization that the very concept of borrowing the so-called good parts from religion still just made it feel too much like religion. Whenever I've gone to church back in Denmark, I've always liked the sermon part the most. It's a great idea to share some stories and moral lessons with a bunch of people and thereby offer them something to think about for the rest of the day, and perhaps after that. And for a while, I thought that was exactly the kind of thing that there should be more of in the lives of non-religious people. But then it occurred to me, there are already plenty of opportunities to sit down in front of someone giving a potentially inspiring talk in a non-religious setting. Any kind of academic lecture, for one, but also professional conferences, your local book club, or even comedy shows. Or, you know, you could listen to a podcast like this one. As such, there's not exactly a shortage of people willing to share their stories, theories, and potential wisdom with you. And in terms of rituals, it seems to me that any kind of recurring tradition you may have with your family, friends, or coworkers has the potential, if you do it right, to be at least as meaningful as what you can achieve in a church. Still, even as I left the concept of imitating religion in a non-religious manner behind, I was confused as to what I should call myself. 
I didn't like the terms atheist or non-believer because they mainly stated what you weren't. I struggled with this for years, and along the way I decided to call myself a nihilist. I wasn't 100% happy with it, but it seemed to make sense to me since it emphasizes that there's no God, no specific meaning of life, no universal moral philosophy or guiding principles. We're all just here trying to make the best of life, for ourselves, but also for others, because it feels good to do good, and because we personally benefit from being nice to other people. But that still wasn't a moral philosophy. That was just an intellectually elevated version of basic survival. Then in 2009, I had a breakthrough. I had been watching the BBC documentary series entitled Atheism, A Rough History of Disbelief, which of course featured Richard Dawkins. As a supplementary series, the BBC broadcast the Atheism Tapes, which featured extended versions of the interviews that had been recorded for the original series. One of the people interviewed was the British philosopher Colin McGinn. It was a strange but exciting experience to watch the interview because his philosophical journey had so much overlap with mine. He hadn't taken the Anton LaVey detour, but he had been significantly inspired by the Bertrand Russell essay, Why I'm Not a Christian, and he even talked about the concept of post-atheism and the necessity of going beyond atheism as simply not believing in God. The whole thing blew me away, and I felt like telling him about it, so I found his website and posted a message via an online forum. I didn't just tell him about the various overlaps in our journeys, however. I also put forward the question to him, and here's what I wrote. In the discussion of isms, atheism, anti-theism, post-atheism, and such, what keeps you from calling yourself a nihilist? The lack of universal meaning in the world, the lack of metaphysics, and the lack of an intention behind our existence, is that not exactly what nihilism is? Could it be, perhaps, that this particular ism is avoided due to its even stronger negative connotations than those that come along with atheism? Or do you see so much meaning in the world that it would not make sense for you to call yourself a nihilist? A few days later, I got a response. He wrote, Mikkel, the short answer is that to call myself a nihilist would concede to the theist that God is the only possible source of meaning and value. I believe in science, the arts, objective morality, etc., so I'm not a nihilist about these things. I'm no more a nihilist than is someone who denies that Santa Claus exists, even if believers in him think he's the source of all meaning. I'm glad to hear that your thinking is close to mine, which I regard as simple common sense. Best wishes, Colin McGinn. I quickly responded to him. Of course, it seems so simple and obvious when you put it like that, yet I hadn't thought of it in those terms. Something to ponder. Thanks a lot for your answer and your time. I'm really happy you responded. Best of luck in all your endeavors. Sadly, his endeavors included actions that would lead to a sexual harassment complaint by a student and a subsequent resignation from Miami University in 2013. One could say he fell from grace, cast from the kingdom of academia. Nevertheless, I have to give him credit for giving me that final push away from nihilism in 2009, back when I thought he was just a friendly philosopher. It really seemed incredibly simple to take this kind of step away from God and religion as the only possible source of meaning and value, and to simply focus on all the other things in life that provide you with meaning and value, without needing to subscribe to any religious or non-religious ism at all. Though, of course, if you ask me if I believe in God and I say no, you are right to conclude that I'm an atheist. But I still don't like identifying with an ism whose sole purpose is to state something I'm not. The step away from nihilism also helped eradicate that feeling of nothingness that is inherently tied to calling yourself a nihilist. 
Instead of having a gloomy focus on the meaninglessness of it all, the subtle switch in perspective allowed me to focus on all the things in life that do indeed bring me endless amounts of not just meaning and value, but also joy and full-on excitement about being alive. And that's where I still am today. I don't feel like there's anything missing just because I don't believe in God or anything else supernatural. Instead, I'm thankful to be alive. And I feel like I have more fun and exciting things in my life to do than I have time for. So I don't wake up in the morning longing for God. And I also no longer ponder who I can shock by revealing an alignment with the devil. However, I'm still highly curious about the meaning of life and other people's beliefs. And I'm every bit as excited to talk to people about such topics as I was as a teenager. I'm just much less of an attention-seeking, pot-stirring asshole in my way of going about it. I guess that's a win for everyone.